Welcome to episode 38 of the Mountainland Running Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Heiderscheidt from the University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine. And here with my co-host, well, actually I'm not with my co-host. Mark Anderson is unable to join us today. So it is just me. You have to listen to my voice throughout the entire podcast. Uh, hopefully I can keep you entertained as we go along, though. Um, actually, I just want to let our listeners know I am fresh back from Park City, Utah for our Mountainland uh, Running Summit. Uh, it was fantastic this past year. We had a sold-out uh, venue, uh, decent weather, little hiccups, got a little bit of uh, chill at evenings, but it was great. Uh, record turnout for our morning runs on the trails, uh, just an overall fantastic programming. Uh, special shout-out to all of our speakers who took the time to attend this year and provide our attendees with all of uh, with some fantastic information and really raise the bar for what we need to do next year. So, uh You've, uh, you've, you've dropped the, the hammer in terms of the challenge that I need to come up with uh, even better program for next year, which is going to be really hard to do. Uh, but again, look for a save the date announcements that will come out soon for our 2020 event. Uh, we plan to stay in Park City. It's been a uh, work for us so far and, and uh, has been a great, fantastic venue for us. So once we get that final date confirmed, we will uh, make sure to announce it on our podcast, but also on our website at summit.mlrehab.com. As always, send any questions and feedback you have regarding our podcast to, M- to podcast at mlrehab.com. All right, let's get on with today's guest. We are joined today by Dr. Nicholas Murray. Dr. Murray is a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and director of the Visual Motor Lab at East Carolina University. Dr. Murray's research involves visual motor control, brain activity, and the influence of cognitive effort within motor control and learning. His primary goal is to determine antecedents and consequences of an individual's ability to function in dynamic situations based on the physiologic changes that can either facilitate or debilitate motor control. His recent projects include cognitive demands of gait retraining and the neural time course of information processing that disrupt motor behavior. Welcome, Nick, and thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. This is going to be one of those uh, many podcasts that I'm on where I have no idea about your research background and in terms of, of how, how to ask good questions on it. I think you are in a whole other category from the area that I typically uh, tend to research. Yeah. Well, I, t- I try to put myself in that place for a lot of fit people anyway. So it's, a, it's an interesting line of research, to say the least. I bet. I mean, it's one that I know that when we've talked about at different conferences or events on this concept of gait retraining mm-hmm. uh, from, you know, we, we approach it very much from the biomechanic side and the tissue loading side. And the question we always get, uh, not to mention the ones we've always asked, mm-hmm. is what are the learning processes involved and what is the cognitive load associated with these sorts of, of retraining tasks? And can anybody truly ever mm-hmm. learn uh, this concept of retraining. So I am, I'm excited to be able to talk about, uh, with you today about this line of work and see what sort of answers we can bring sure. to those questions. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, how long have you been doing this area of research with, with gait retraining and, and, and cognitive load? Well, so uh, this research with gait retraining comes out of um, other work that I have done, and it goes back to about uh, four or five years now that we've been doing this work. Um, and uh, my colleague that's on a recent paper, Rich Willie, who was at East Carolina University, but now is at University of Montana, um, he is a, a biomechanist and a physical therapist uh, and a fantastic one at that, and of course a running researcher. And 
this question that you're talking about, he, he and I uh, spent a, a bit of time trying to look at how we could actually determine whether someone is learning this new gait. And, and it, go, you know, it goes back to a deeper uh, question of whether if you have a, a skill that you've really well learned, practiced for many years, what does it take to, to actually retrain it in a meaningful way? Great. Mm-hmm. So, so we've, we're going to talk today about one of your, your papers with Rich, right. uh, but before we get into those details of it, maybe we can just provide a little bit of a background on yourself for our listeners. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where does your training background, your career mm-hmm. background, what got you into this line of work in general? Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, um, well, I found my way to the University of Florida and, uh, you know, like many of us in this area, we kind of start off looking at sport in the sport realm and trying to understand how to be better at, at, you know, how to optimize performance and, you know, led me down a path where I really got fascinated with uh, the neuroscience of performance. And, uh, you know, early in my work, I started looking at uh, brain function and how that relates to skilled behavior and skill acquisition. And then from that, you know, we've done a number of projects where we look at performance optimization all the way from, uh, highly skilled individuals to reacquisition of uh, skill from, say, injury. So we we spend a, a long time going between those two things. And um, I look at it in a variety of ways. I often say, describe myself as someone who studies brains and eyes. So I look at how the brain modulates with uh, uh, skill acquisition and behavior, and then how we in- process information, and particularly through the visual system, in order to uh, you know, to achieve optimal performance. And uh, so this has um, been my kind of work since I've been at East Carolina University. So it goes back all the way um, till I finished my PhD in 2000. So I've been doing this for quite a while now, actually. That's great. And But yeah. now your work is not necessarily specific to running, right? It's really over all sorts of different athletic or sporting activities. Yeah, it's not just specific to running. Um, you know, I get in trouble a little bit for that because I'm just fascinated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm fascinated by uh, different, uh, you, you know, whether it be um, – uh, you know, whether it be sport or whether it be expert performance or whether it be, uh, you know, recreational activities like uh, runners might, you might find in a runner group. Uh, you know, so I tend to just spread my thinking uh, across different a- a- activities. And the whole goal there really is to understand the same thing, which is this, uh, you know, what are the, uh, what's the workload? What's the changes that may happen uh, from an from a central nervous system perspective on skill acquisition. So nice. And so, you know, when you're, when you talk about studying the brain and brain relearning and the concepts of the cognitive demand, how, how do you go about measuring that? I mean, what sort of instrumentation and technology do you use? Right. Yeah. So we, we measured in two, two ways. One is we measure it, what I would say behaviorally. So we have to, oftentimes we'll have some other dual task that they use and it, in, in the paper we'll talk about today, we, we, this was a subcomponent of the project, but it's not actually in this paper, but we often will have them doing some other task along with the primary task. And if we see changes in that uh, secondary task um, or the impact of that secondary task changing, then we can say, uh, you, you know, that maybe skill acquisition or learning is happening. And the other way we do it often is with um, what we, we measure electroencephalogram or EEG. And so we actually measure the uh, brain activity or the electrical activity of the brain, and we look for modulations in that activity. So, um, and we can do it a variety of ways. One way we particularly do it is we look at 
particular waveforms and how those waveforms will change relative to um, you know the the environment that we put someone in or the training we provide someone and whether those those will uh, you know different waveforms have different meanings and whether they decrease or increase relative to uh, to the the environment we put someone in so nice yeah probably the closest that i've ever used is more of an emg electromyographic mm -hmm. uh for, for the muscle activity look at that at the electrical yeah. signal but you're talking about a, a different concept i mean similar probably similar in terms mm -hmm. of theory and technology but really different in terms of how you're going to look at the signal absolutely yeah and one thing we do with the um brain that's kind of different than e emgs that you know we'd look at a whole brain analysis so we can look at how different areas of the brain will um react to the either the stimulus or the world that we provide the individual so okay. um, or the changes we might have so we, we and we tend to you know we look at um whether there's be changes in, in the frontal lobe, which would be a more cognitive type of change or demand that we might have, mm -hmm. or changes in the motor cortex and what might be happening there. So, so if you're trying to measure whole brain activity, how, mm -hmm. how many electrodes do you need in order to capture that? So yeah, we usually use uh, anywhere from 64 to 128 electrodes. Oh. Um, typically it's 64 just because the time it takes to uh, prepare a, a, a uh, a participant, a subject, to, in order to um, to do some kind of experiment with that individual, it takes a long time. If we use 128, so we kind of it's a more efficient to use 64. Yeah, I would imagine that it also you don't you don't have to shave the head quite as much if it's 64. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, bald head does work better, but uh, <laughs> uh, we we don't have to shave the head. Though. We use uh, um, it's the technology and the thing about where we are right now in the state of um, uh, EEG and measuring brain activity, we're in a, a place that's different because of computer, com computer technology and the, the speed of computers and the mathematical uh, tools that we have today. I mean, it, if you would have asked me five years ago whether we can measure uh, whole body movements and measure brain activity, I probably would have sold you, no, we can't do that, it's impossible. But now we have, um, good statistical techniques that allow us to look at how brain changes when people do large body movements like running. And that was really which makes this whole project possible is that we have these techniques today. That's yeah, very and, cool. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever come up with any reason where you've identified with certain individuals maybe that um, they're not a candidate for gait retraining? Is there any sort of or I should say not necessarily gate retraining, but, but even any sort of uh, motor retraining at all. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen anything in, on, their, on their initial EEGs that might suggest that you know, they are more or less open to this sort of approach? Yeah, we can't really pick that up from the EEG signal. Um, and the, the problem is that we, we have to look at the individual themselves and then look at changes within the individual. So, um, you know, I suspect there, there would be some states that people would be in that would be uh, less uh, ideal for um, you know types of training particularly if yeah. they had you know some um, some type of dysfunction that might cause that but typically speaking we see because uh, we're just looking at changes in the waveforms within the individual so um, you know as long as we can get a baseline measure on someone you know if someone yeah. has something like constant seizures and things like that or significant okay. brain damage we might see some difficulties there or some modulation that's happening that's not relative to to learning so okay yeah, yeah. It makes sense so when you guys set up this particular paper which will um, 
Well, I guess we must introduce the paper now. and might as well. <laughs> so for our listeners, we're going to be uh, referring to, to um, one of Nick's recent papers. Uh, it's called the, the Cognitive Demands of Gait Retraining in Runners, an EEG study. And this was published in 2019 in the Journal of Motor Behavior. Um, and Rich, as you mentioned, is one of the co-authors. Now it looks mm -hmm. like you've got a number of other co-authors as well. You mentioned these are primarily students. Yeah, uh, most of the co-authors are students. Uh, we have a couple of PhD students that are on the paper, and then right. one of my other colleagues, Chris Mizell, who's also um, in sensory motor control and looks at uh, EEG as a primary measure, is another one of the authors on that paper as well. But the rest of them are all student involvement. Uh, we take a very passionate interest in getting students involved in research at ECU and in we like them to become authors on the paper to be meaningfully involved into the project. So that's, that's our approach here. So, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It really gets, uh, helps to foster that, uh, that, uh, that research mindset is really yeah. good. Yeah. We, we don't want them just to be worker bees. We want them to be, feel like that's, they're, they're part of the project, you know? Right. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. So yeah. With, with this particular paper, it seems mm -hmm. like this is probably, at least to my knowledge, one of the first that's really, made these sorts of measurement at least in runners on, and when they're trying mm -hmm. to make a change in gait is that what yeah. you agree yeah there's several um recent papers that are looking at like i mentioned earlier whole body movements and looking at measuring eeg uh and you know they're doing different manipulations and part of it was just proof of concept mm -hmm. that we could measure brain activity while people move because noise is a problem in uh, noise in the EEG signal, noise is a problem that we always have to handle, and there's different types of noise, and, and of course, movement artifact is a big problem uh, with that. So there's been several recent papers that have looked at, you know, either walking um, or fast walking, and maybe one or two that looked at running, but never in a meaningful way in regards to something like gait retraining or learning. Um, so in this, that case, this is the first paper along that line. Nice. Yeah. Well, and I know this is really, it's, it's a, taking another step along Rich's prior work with gait mm -hmm. retraining, where in particular, I know you guys are interested in uh, the, the gait retraining that one might use if somebody sustained a, a tibial stress fracture or, or tibial stress reaction and, and right. it, with the goal of trying to manipulate the number of step rate or their step rate when they're running. Mm -hmm. um, that was the, the, the particular goal, gate retraining that was involved, correct? Right, exactly. Yeah, so, and that's Rich's approach is that, you know, if we can increase a step rate by about five to 10% in that range anyway, because it's really difficult to increase it to an actual, you know, 7% or something like that. Right. So provide someone with you, buddy with a range. And then, um, provide them with training with it. And of course, part of this project too was involving, you know, technology to get them out of the lab and actually working right. on practicing uh, the, the, you know, retraining the gate in uh, their normal environment, doing their normal routine of their normal running routine, you know, following the normal protocol, but with the goal of increasing that step rate to lower the, you know, the excessive load rate on that individual and hopefully lower the risk of tibial stress injuries yeah yeah i'd be curious i was there what your thoughts are and maybe we can visit this toward the end yeah. you know whether the findings from this particular form of gate retraining can be generalized do you think to other forms of gate retraining mm -hmm. but again we'll, we'll hold that question for now and sure and yeah. uh, work toward that in just a bit so with your study design can you talk about that a little bit it looks like mm -hmm. it was you know a fair number of subjects but obviously you're talking about a time 
intensive measurement sessions. Right. Yeah. You, can't, you, know, you can't enroll 300 people. Yes. It's got to be a little more uh, limited in that size. Right. And, you know, we were limited on two ways. One is we, you know, we needed to be sure that the people were active runners and that they had a history within the last 24 months of um, tibial stress injury. So that was part of our inclusion sure. criteria. And then we, um, you know, had to be sure that they uh, were willing to complete the tr protocol too, which involved, you know, eight weeks of, of training. And so they, uh, you know, you sort of narrow down the group really quickly that way. Right. We, did, we did have a small grant, so we were able to, you know, incentivize individuals for being part of the, the study, which was, which was helpful, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, but they had to come into the lab uh, three times and and uh, have the EEG set up on them and then run for, um, you know, the running trials. And then, uh, you know, so they would come in for for over an hour or two to, uh, wow. for that whole test, you know. Yeah. It took longer to set them up than it did to collect data, but. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. I'm sure each one of those 64 electrodes is, is as good right. as sitting well. Yeah. So, so when you, you had them come in at prior to the gate retraining, mm -hmm. and then again immediately after, um, how many sessions of gate retraining? So they, um, well, we, so what, what we did was, um, so they came in for an initial ses session and they ran at their preferred rate uh, running, uh, for preferred stride rate. And then we would prescribe them with a five to 10% increase of it. And w they would run that way again. So we, we would, in the single session, we would test them with the preferred rate and then an increase of step rate. And then uh, we would give them a, uh, it was a Garmin, uh, 70 uh, that had a little pot, a foot pod on it and we would yeah. give that to them and we would send them on their way with instructions to um, uh, you know to use what we call bandwidth feedback and bandwidth feedback is where we the good thing about the Garmin was it had a, a setting where you could set it where you had a five you could set their stride rate to mm -hmm. a range and it would provide you with a signal if you got outside of that range mm -hmm. but if you were in that range it would be um, it would be silence. So it, w it wasn't like it was a metronome forcing them to to run at a particular uh, stride rate, but it was mm -hmm. just a, it would enable them to practice that stride rate without this um, you know without this sort of guidance feedback going on this this constant feedback going on and yeah. and, and I think that's actually a really important part of the study. It's kind of a subtle part of the study, but uh, it really sort of drives this implicit learning that mm -hmm. they're learning how to control their motor system without um, some explicit feedback source that would r really kind of be required to be there all the time. So if we gave them a, a tone or a metronome to follow for their step rate, they once you once you remove that, then it might be more difficult to argue that learning is happening in that situation. So by having this sort of bandwidth approach, and that was really kind of interesting about the the watch we used. It it had this as an option, which I was sort of pleased by, because by having this bandwidth approach, it enables them to uh, to work their body in a way that they're matching this goal of increasing their step rate with five yeah. to ten percent without without explicitly forcing that on them. You know, yeah. so sort of solving that whole movement problem themselves. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. So then they they ran on their own with that Garmin for mm -hmm. how many? How many? Was that a couple of weeks? Yeah. For yes. For um. So the total time was six. So they ran six weeks. Uh, okay. On that. Yeah. So and the, they it was total eight weeks that we had the individuals because we, you know, tested them initially and then they came back for a follow up. Got it. Yeah. And then so just to. One of the things that we think about step rate, the questions we get asked a lot mm -hmm. is, obviously there's a big uh, interdependence between step rate and running speed. Mm -hmm. So with the Garmin, were you also, was it, was it a GPS enabled Garmin was, where you could yeah. monitor their speed at running? Right, yeah, and, and they were given instructions not to increase their speed, but just right. to increase the step, the step rate. And, you know, and, and it's, it's the interest, you know, you can easily do that in, in the laboratory environment because, yeah. you know, we monitored them on, a, on an instrumented treadmill and like, and everybody you bring into, you can tell them to do that so that they would have to try to monitor this a little bit on their own. And um, the, the Garmin allowed them to track that. So they're all provided that instruction to maintain speed, um, but increase step rate. Okay, nice. Mm -hmm. So, um well, a couple other pieces on the su on the subjects that were involved. What was their uh, rough age age range, and did you enroll both males and females? So we had um, uh, ten females and uh, three males, and they were mostly uh, at college age, so eighteen okay. to twenty four year old. Uh, the primary range of that. Um, they, uh, uh, like I said, they were all active runners, um, yeah. and uh, so yeah, they were. Um, we try to increase the the males. We for some reason we were just able to recruit more females in the study. So yeah. sure, no, understood. Yeah. All right, um, you want to jump into the results? Sure, absolutely. So uh, you know, particularly you know some of the interesting results we had was that um, you, overall that they they um, their base. So we, when we had a baseline trial uh, and then we increased it post-training to what we like to call new gate um, is that they had an increase in their stride rate uh, following the training. So we saw yeah. that outcome of it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, different aspects like stance phase and um, showed a decrease in post-training um, and stride, the stride link was longer in their baseline than it was in post-training. So all these sort of Which biomechanical factors yep. play true. And, you know, and again, the thing about this is like you could have had without this, this, you know, my area of it was, of course, which was really interesting, um, is that we, you know, you could send someone off and train them this way, and they could come back and they could repeat these outcome. Mm -hmm. and, we, and, you know, your question earlier is whether they're really learning. And so that was Rich's question is, how can we look at this? And so what we found in the, um, so by measuring the EEG, you know, to put it simply is that when they, uh, when we gave them their baseline trial, uh, and then we gave them the new gate, we saw an increase in overall activity of the brain during that new uh, gate. And so when they're trying to adapt to this new stride rate, and then following the training, when they came back, we saw this return to baseline with the EEG activity. Um, and we particularly saw this in the front, left frontal cortex. Um, and, uh, and that's, um, you know, um, and we saw it also in the right frontal cortex, but uh, what's interesting in the frontal cortex, what's interesting about that is that it shows us that some greater cognitive band and they're trying to access some uh, both language centers that potentially would be involved in that and maybe some spatial relationships with uh, that movement control would be involved in that. We did see some minor changes in the um, 
primary motor cortex and some in the parietal lobe, which uh, in the parietal lobe you'd say uh, is involved more in, in spatial location and spatial function, also in sensory motor function. Mm -hmm. So we did see some changes in there as well. Um, nice. But uh, particularly what's most interesting is this sort of greater uh, frontal activity that was happening during uh, their, when they received it as a new gate, and then uh, that returned back to a baseline after they had learned a task over um, the training period. Nice. So when you remeasured them, well, sorry, at the same time when you introduced them to the new gate, and then yeah. when you reassessed them after that mm -hmm. six weeks period, yeah. I'm curious if you measured any any other markers of what might be regarded as, as uh, individuals perceived effort, like some sort of an RPE or a rating of perceived exertion. Yeah. So we didn't, we didn't do that particularly, but we did, um, and this isn't in the paper, uh, we did measure, as I mentioned earlier, we did, we often do a dual task yeah. uh, situation. And so what we actually had them do is what's called a go, no go task um, where while they were running, uh, they did a trial where they had a, uh, we they ran in front on a computer screen. It was in front of the treadmill, and they had this. Uh, it's a, sort of a classic task um, where you have a number of images appear, and uh, you have a target image. And every time that target image appears, you would press a button. And if the target image didn't appear, you would do nothing. And so, uh, in that task, you you can measure error and you can measure um, speed at which they respond. And one of the things that we found in that data was uh, is that after they after the gate retraining happened, they actually would be faster in their response. And again, that returned closer to baseline. So they had their baseline trial yep. with their their way that they normally run, and then they got the, received the new gate. They had longer reaction times, and then after the training, they came back reaction times again return back down towards baseline. So it gave us another indicator in addition to the changes in the brain function, but it also gave us an indicator in uh, this dual task um, yeah. approach. Yeah, no others that when they've utilized gate retraining in a clinic setting, we've done on occasion done it as well. You've, yeah. Um, once they once they get past that initial, okay, I, I understand what you're asking me to do in terms of my gait, and yeah. you're really trying to hopefully see if they've learned it or at least reinforce mm -hmm. it using maybe something like the um, Stroop test is another common dual yeah. task that I've, I've heard right. people using or serial sevens or serial threes yeah. or yeah. You know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. We've tried, we tried all those. We did um, some serial sevens is another classic, classic one that's often done. Yeah. Uh, we have done that with balance when we do some balance tasks and it doesn't serial sevens doesn't work with balance tasks because people tend to count on their fingers and then they disrupt <laughs> their balance. So, <laughs> so, right. you can't, so I don't recommend it when, if you're trying to assess balance to do yeah. that. So, right. Yeah. Right. No kidding. Yeah. So, so you brought them back in after the six weeks mm -hmm. and did, did you happen to take another one like a month or two later at all or anything like that? Was there a follow-up assessment? Yeah, that would be the, that would have been uh, probably a good, good, chance we did do assessment in the middle of it to look okay. at uh, so after they um were there we had them come back for a, a, mid, a mid check and that was a lot largely to see whether they were following the protocol yeah 
and um, uh, then to measure their activity as well. Uh, and you know, we didn't see a whole lot of change at that midpoint. And but you know, they had only had been training for uh, you know half the time at that at that stage. Yeah. And we did it, it. It did cause us to have to eliminate some individuals because they weren't staying with the training. You know, they weren't running enough, so we were able to track that as well. So, oh, you were so. Mm -hmm. With their Garmin watches, you're able to access what they were doing. hundred percent. Yeah, nice. we were able to access. That's great. Yeah, and 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 to know whether they were actually achieving um, the goals we set out for them. So yeah. And how compliant they were with it. So, okay. Yeah. So if they if the if the compliance was more about that they went for a run and maintained mm -hmm. a particular speed, or was it more about that they tried to stay within that bandwidth, or or both? Uh, so it. Um, yeah, we didn't analyze that data, but I believe it only would tell us um, whether they went for a run and they maintained a particular speed. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure it would give us the information that they stayed within that bandwidth. Yeah, it did. It did have an alarm every time you went out of it. So, um, and so that's how that Garmin worked. Yeah, and 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 eventually, what we did was we took them off of that to where yeah. um, they. Uh, were, had just what we call summary feedback. So they could see how well they did on their run with the watch, following the watch, but they, yeah. weren't, they weren't able to access any of the information during the run. So again, that's trying to encourage this sort of implicit learning approach where, yeah. we, where, the, where you're letting them sort of solve this movement problem rather than um, trying, to, trying to, to manage the movement problem for them. Because you know? yeah. eventually we took the watch back and, and they'd have to run on their own. So yeah. yeah. So what, let me let me throw this out there, and I, just to get your thoughts on it. With the increased cognitive load mm -hmm. that was present, and, and maybe that's not the right term that I'm using, but I'll I'll stick with it anyway. No, that's a, I think you, no, you're right on track. Yeah, no, I think that's a good good way to describe it. Actually, yeah. so yeah. Uh, with that increased yeah. cognitive load that occurred right after the gate retraining, mm -hmm. is there any reason to think? And I'm going to go out to the far uh, extreme on this one and say, is there any reason to think that that individual's safety, movement safety when it comes mm -hmm. to running is a concern? I mean, if you put them in a, a busier environment, like, you know, along the side of a road or mm -hmm. a sidewalk, that you could be compromising their safety at all? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think there's potential for that, um, particularly if you're asking a lot of demand of their attention um, and kind of related to that is we are um, just put this in perspective we're doing a study right now where we're looking at um, jump jump landing and uh, we're actually trying to do some train so we we saw that people who if you jump and land and or and jump and do something and then land so like if you go up to head a soccer ball for example yeah. and then land your landing mechanics change because of that. So we're actually doing a, a trial right now where we're uh, going to do an intervention where we're training individuals to do jump landings with some distractions. So they would do some training without distractions, some training with distraction and trying to work on improving their mechanics when there is distraction because there's greater risk of injury due to that. So the mechanics change whether you're distracted or not. So I think your question is a very good one, a valid one in that, you know, if we ask too much of somebody or we give them too much to pay attention to that they could be lost in that function and and, and there could be a risk of safety in that stepping off a curb the wrong yeah. way something like that because they're more focused on their step rate so it, it could be a concern yes well i would imagine that the bigger this kind of goes back to my earlier question that we tabled mm -hmm. to now the the yeah. bigger the gate retraining mm -hmm. the more complex the the bigger this issue could be right 
Yeah. So yeah, and and if we're really trying to um, do it in a more complex way, you know, again, that's why I like this uh, this implicit bandwidth yeah. approach because it actually reduces the cognitive load on the individual so they don't have to sit there and think you know imagine if you had a a, a beep that you had to respond to and you were trying to time your run out to that beep the whole time well that would add a lot different cognitive load and even some of the papers we can we looked at relative to this work oftentimes they were looking at changes to an, an external auditory source and then looking at changes in the brain relative to that and yeah. so it it's you know you have, so you have to be careful when we put someone in the real environment whether if we're giving them something that could be a potential distractor and make this this whole process a little bit more complex than it needs to be so, yeah for sure yeah. yeah really you know not just the god sort of gate retraining but how you go about it mm -hmm. really is a big piece to, to, yeah. that, to that puzzle yeah because yeah. i would imagine that the, the what you observed is so specific to this approach to gate retraining that it, right. it would you would you feel comfortable trying to predict what you would see with other forms of gait retraining, like whether you had somebody go from a heel strike pattern to a toe strike pattern, mm -hmm. or whether you were trying to have people control a very specific joint motion, you yeah. know, preventing their <laughs> hips, hips from going a certain way or their pelvis right. from going yeah. a certain way. I would be, yeah, I would be careful in trying to predict <laughs> that. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's certainly, I think, depending on the approach, you would have a period of time where there'd be a lot more cognitive demand of that task. And, and if they are learning it, if you set this, the right, uh, you know, protocol in place and they are learning that demand should decrease. So I think anyway, we can assess how much cognitive demand it gives us some indication anyway of their gait retraining, you know? And so, and I, and it, like you said, more complex movements, like the one you mentioned, uh, you know, those are going to add more demand, you know, if we're trying to really change, you know, whether your, your heel strike, uh, you know, that to me seems to be a bit more complex than just changing your start stride rate, yeah. particularly because how easy people can do exactly. you know, change their stride rate. I mean, you can, I can put anybody on a treadmill right now and ask you to do that and maintain a particular speed, you yeah. know, and of course yeah, the, de exactly. the demand is less too on the treadmill because the treadmill is telling is maintaining that speed, speed. for them forum so and you know and that's a another good reason to try to use this you know in-field technology that we have today that's so readily available to get people to do these things in their uh, natural environment if you will you know yeah so well, and like you said, I think that's actually even using the combination as a way to progress the demand. If you mm -hmm. started with just like a session or two, maybe three on mm -hmm. a treadmill in a very controlled right. environment. Yeah. So they figure that out with not able to think about their speed and then, mm -hmm. and then take it outside once you've, once you've kind of passed that first step. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And that way you can um, kind of maybe lower the demand as they enter into the, to the real world as well. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. so one of the questions for you with regard to the cognitive demand mm -hmm. is, are you aware of any relationship between the cognitive load and the metabolic load? In other words, is there a relationship between VO2 yeah. consumption, which is obviously a really importance to a lot of runners right. uh, yeah. and any acute changes in VO2 that's associated with this cognitive load? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, so we we recently did finished a project and kind of a, a little different than what you're explaining, asking, but um, we measured their VO2. Uh, we did a, a fatiguing protocol where we had individuals ride on a cycle for two hours till they're exhausted um, at 70% of their VO2. And we looked at their cognitive function before mm -hmm. and after 
that um, task. We manipulated some other variables in there, but one of the interesting things, and, and, and a lot of this research, uh, in the, of course, we weren't manipulating the cognitive demand during the task itself, the yeah. writing, the cycling, but, uh, you know, post-exercise, um, they uh, were able to maintain some of the, perf the cognitive performance on the cognitive task we did pre and post. We did a go-no-go -go task there as well. Okay. So, um, there, there is, um, you know, energy consumption and, and the like uh, during that, uh, during running, and, and you would see changes relative to that cognitive function. Um, some of them fell off, too. They, they really did a lot poorer post-exercise as well, but many of them were able to maintain some level of cognitive performance. So these were people that were, you know, exceptionally fit as well. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because when we've done some of the, some of the uh, step rate changes in our own mm -hmm. studies, you know, we've, we've tried to assess some level of, of metabolic load without, without doing mm -hmm. a full-blown VO2. We'll yeah. just measure their heart rate, for example. Right. Um, and then also measure their RPEs or, and ask mm -hmm. their RPE. And, and invariably, when, when any of the, uh, the subjects that we had or patients that we had were introduced to this new novel task, during running, right? Yeah, yeah, changing their step rate would be a novel form of it. They would automatically, their RPE value would go up one or two mm -hmm. points. Right. You know, that they perceive this extra effort, but their heart rate at least didn't reflect any change. Yeah. 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 And right. so, you know, you wonder how much of that perceived effort, mm -hmm. which, which they, they, you know, aren't able to necessarily distinguish the source right, of that of effort that. or load yeah. is actually cognitive in nature. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and, it, and it, I would agree with that. That would, that, it's certainly a cognitive, it, it requires effort in order to maintain that. And you would have, you know, to over, to overcome that, you have to be aware of the attentional demand that it's requiring, the cognitive efforts requiring. Um, anytime you do any type of manipulation with particularly a well-learned task, like these individuals are, are, are doing right? yeah so. but the advantage again as you guys have very clearly showed in your in your paper is that that mm. load is temporary it's it's initial right. uh, yeah. you know you test it after six weeks i'd be i really wonder how much if you need the full six weeks to return to baseline mm. or if it's a two-week window or or what that what that uh, window looks like right exactly yeah. yeah yeah we don't i don't have a good answer for that what what is the right right what is the right timeline i'm not sure and 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 again, like you mentioned, we, we didn't test them, you know, we didn't have them come back, you know, two months later, a month later, or, or like attract them. Um, you know, anecdotally, we did meet back up with some of them who, who thought that it had helped, you know, yeah. and, and said that they were still doing that. So I have yeah. that, but, you know, we didn't follow them up from a, from a scientific perspective. Yeah. Well, and it makes sense. I mean, some, really, these are individuals. Yeah, they've had a prior tibial stress reaction or, or fracture. And so they might benefit from this gait manipulation sort of approach, yeah. but, but they also may not. There may not be actual, mm -hmm. your, your actual candidates for it for a variety right. of reasons. But, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think Rich would tell you, too, if he was here, you know, there's, it's, it's not a one size fits all yes, uh, totally. approach, you know, you know totally. so there's different, um, there's different reasons why you one would use this approach versus another approach. You yeah. Know, so, yeah. Cool. Well, you've already alluded to a little bit, but uh, you guys have any other new research in the hopper related to running at least, or, or that's might help us understand this more. Right. Uh, yeah. So right now we, um, we don't have something directly related to, to running. Um, one of the things that we do have related to musculoskeletal injury is we are, um, uh, we are looking in at head injury and increase in musculoskeletal injury. So okay. um, people with head injury, um, there's a, 
it's um, a, a, they have a greater uh, uh, potential for lower, especially lower yeah. extremity injury following head injury. So we're sure. looking at some of the mechanisms that are involved with that, and, and some of that is going to involve um, whole body movements and um, particularly like uh, um, uh, you know we're looking at whether it's a it's a cognitive problem, whether it's a motor problem, a decision making problem yeah. that leads to this greater in, increase in musculoskeletal injury. So. That's great. I'm excited yeah. to see that because yeah, we we published some of our data out of uh, UW Athletics showing mm -hmm. showing that same relationship. That if, mm -hmm. You know, following a yeah a um, sport related concussion once they're cleared and back on the field, and mm -hmm. you know, and have passed all the uh, the the measures to get there yeah. for those initial three to six months, there's an elevated uh, risk of lower extremity MSK injury. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, we're just trying to understand the mechanism behind that. And, and, it, right. and I think it's a cognitive load going back to this point is a cognitive load issue. You know, you're, you're trying to think about your movements a little bit more, maybe trying to avoid injury as a potential yeah. mechanism, you know, maybe right. slower to react, you know, could be a variety of factors. Yeah. So, well, this was this was a great conversation. Thanks for jumping on. Is there a particular take-home message you want to leave with our listeners today? So, I, yeah, I think the take-home message would be that um, you know, that anytime we learn a new task, there's going to be a greater demand on that, and you have to give yourself uh, opportunity to practice that, to feel comfortable with that. And I also think that it, it's important to um, create a solution where you can you can. Uh, uh, you know, use this implicit learning or some type of approach where it's not, it gets away a bit from the conscious demand of learning that new task and we let our body solve the problem, you know. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah. Nick, thanks again so much for joining yeah. us today. Really appreciate taking the time. I know you have a lot of other things you could be doing and, and uh, to, you know, be able to spend some time with us is really appreciated. I know. I really appreciate it, Brian. Thanks so much for having me on. I've, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks again. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Mark Anderson, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Registration for the 2020 Mount Land Running Summit will open soon. So keep your eyes out for it. And of course, look for our Save the Data announcement that will come out soon. And you can check out full programming as it becomes available at summit.mlrehab.com. As always, you can find more information on all the running medicine resources offered by Mount Land Physical Therapy at mlrehab.com slash one. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.